This podcast is produced by Clarence Valley Community Church. If you benefit from our ministry and you would like to support us, details can be found at our website, cvcc.com.au. There you can also find out more details about our church. Well, today we're going to get started on a new series, a series um, a series on the book of James. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 1 to 4 is what I'll be preaching from today. I feel that whenever we start a new book, there has to be some context given. Otherwise, it's really, actually, it's really important to understanding the Bible. You've got to know the author. You've got to know where they're coming from, their background a little bit, if possible. And it really helps speak into the, the picture of what that author is trying to say and that we get it right, if that makes sense. Because we can pick out any verses and this happens all the time, we can pick out any verse and sort of twist it and malign it to mean anything we want, but that's not the way we treat God's holy word. We come to it and say, Lord, what are you saying here? And to help with that, we must understand a little bit about what's going on. Let's set the scene. If I was to, I guess, set the scene with James, it is a book that is almost like a Christianity proverb, New Testament proverb, real practical. It's going to teach some hard-hitting truths, and it's almost a way in which we respond to the love that God has poured into our heart. That's, that's James's overarching principle. To my understanding, this letter was an open letter given to multiple churches throughout the area. It's not actually addressed to the church in X, Y, and Z. It's just an open letter from this man, James. And there's going to be two chief concerns in this book. So it is a response to the love, but it also challenges and speaks into good theology, so a good understanding of God, and then that heartfelt righteous response. An easy way to maybe to maybe break that down and what James is trying to do is the word, uh, the word of God, the Bible that you have, that's, that steers the ship. This is for any church. And when I say church, I don't mean a building. I mean each of us here. It steers the ship. The word steers the ship. Pure love are the sails and the Holy Spirit is the wind that's pushing this church along. And I'd say through pretty pretty dangerous waters. If you've opened up your Bible recently, you'll find out that we are in enemy territory. And so we need God's word. We need it to do something in us through love. It needs to change us. But then we need the Spirit's empowerment to get through the trials of this life. And so James chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Wow, he sort of comes out of the gate hard, doesn't he? And if I was to put a show of hands, and I'm not, I dare say there's plenty of us here who are struggling with various trials. 
when you threw your heart out on the line and confessed the Lord Jesus Christ, you have made a blatant challenge to Satan and the world. And for that, you are going to face hardship and temptation. But he's not saying temptation here. He's saying this is trials going to be given to you from God. We're going to separate those differences. Now, this letter came from, this is a bit more of that housekeeping, this letter came from Jerusalem. We know that Jerusalem was the birthplace of Jesus Christ, but it was also the birthplace of the church when the Holy Spirit in Acts descended upon the disciples and all those in the upper room. And then from there, the church exploded out into the world. And this James, he's like the, I guess you could say, lead pastor of that church in Jerusalem. Very significant man. And probably why he has the authority to write an open letter and send it out to multiple churches. This is where the church finds its roots, where it began. (laughs) But also, there's something interesting about James and his lineage. James is actually also the half-brother of Jesus. What do I mean by half-brother? Yet Jesus didn't have a father. He only had a mother and God Almighty. So this, so every child that Mary had after that point, they're all Jesus' half-brother, you could say. They take after Mary. Or that part of Mary is the half of where Jesus is. <clears throat> we see this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. <clears throat> is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? They're not with us. Interesting, isn't it? Some of you may not have even known that. But something I guess sad early on in Jesus' ministry was this brother, James, did not believe that his his oldest half-brother was the Messiah, was the Christ. If we were to quickly turn to John 7, verse 5, it says there, for even his own brothers did not believe him. So now we're in a bit of a pickle. James is the head of the church in Jerusalem, but here in John it says that his brothers did not believe him, that's Jesus. Jesus himself would say these words, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and his own home. That was a riddle to me for some time. But what Jesus is saying there is when a prophet goes out from his hometown, everybody's in awe. This man who speaks from God, this woman, this prophetess who speaks from God. And there, uh, I guess if you put it into a bit of a, a, a story, you'd say that at the coronation of King Charles, the people were in awe. Millions were hitting the street, turning on the TVs to look at the ordination of this man. But how do you think his own children or his close relatives see him? That's just old Charlesy. And Jesus was saying the same thing. He's like, he's getting lots of honor as he's going around. When he's going around outside of Galilee, but when he came back home to Galilee and to Nazareth, they're like, no, we we know him. Isn't he just the carpenter's son? 
and his brothers had exactly the same heart. They didn't see it. We've got to remember, Jesus didn't start his ministry up until his 30s. His brothers never saw any miracles. Jesus was just a very righteous child living as one of us, obedient to his parents. And so inconspicuous that even his own family weren't sure on who he was. But how did this unbelieving brother become lead pastor in Jerusalem? What do you think happened? This is actually probably one of the most incredible testaments that we have in Scripture, is that James came face to face with his brother after he rose from the dead. The same spirit that empowered the disciples to believe and to follow after Jesus was the same spirit that began to rest and dwell upon his own family. And for that, after the fact, he came to faith. He came to faith. I hope this fills you with a sense of awe. I love how raw and honest the Bible is. The the brothers didn't believe. Those in Nazareth didn't believe. But then there's a switch. There's a transition because they've had to face the reality of the risen Lord Jesus. And we see in Scripture that God can even open up the mind to the Scriptures and now they understand. I love the internal consistency of Scripture. Unlike Islam, I was challenged this week on the internal consistency of Scripture. I had a man say to me, ah, the Bible's been changed and mistranslated and this and that and all the other. And and in my mind, I'm going, the Bible has been scrutinized by wolves, scholarly wolves for hundreds and hundreds of years, and yet there is not whole, there is not damage done to the faith. We can't say the same for Islam. We can't say the same for the Quran. They're just coming to a point now where now you're able to question Islam. Now you're able to look into the textual criticism of what the Quran, the surahs, actually say, and it is being fired upon left, right, and center because it can't add up to the scrutiny that the scripture falls under. Now James, now that we know a bit about him, half-brother of Jesus, head of the Jerusalem church, was once an unbeliever of Christ, didn't believe him at that stage, is now full-blown running churches. He uses a very interesting word at the beginning of our section here. Verse 1, James, a doulos of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Doulos, your Bible might say servant, might say bond servant, something along those lines. I'll I'll just be honest with you. It means slave. I'll say I'll say it for what it means. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not normally something you'd say of your older half brother. He's had a dramatic change. He doesn't see that that older brother who he grew up with, something incredible has happened in this man's heart, so much so that he has made himself subservient to his brother. But you might ask, why is the Bible using harsh language? Ah, 
Why would he call himself a slave? We recall last week, if you were here, that Jesus challenged Peter. He asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Many of us here would say, I too love Jesus, my Savior. But here's the challenge that James gives us right off the bat, because every single person that this letter went to would have been thinking the same thing. What do you mean slave? We can say, I love Jesus, my Savior. But do we also recognize him as Lord? This is actually going to help answer the question when we get to the the point of trials. Do we see him as general, commander, king? Like a proud declaration, James could be saying, I, James, live to please Jesus and the rest of the world can fall to pieces, but here I take my stand. Because he's a nobody. All he knows is Christ as Lord, Commander, and Master. Jesus frees us from sin to serve him. But like James, and this is the challenge, do we yield to Jesus? It's big, big language. Slave, bondservant, do we yield to Jesus? Who sees themselves as a slave of God and his Christ? Or is it my agenda, my life, my money, my kids, my house, my time, my holiday, my way, I choose, I need, I want? See, what's wrong wrong with all of those? I said I a lot of times, didn't I? Does a servant, does a slave say I? Or what do you want? What should I feel? Where should I go? What should I do? Instead of having the mind of a slave, for James will say, forgive me. And I'm jumping ahead here, but this is how far he goes with this language. In James 4, verses 15 and 16, this is to people who don't want to have this mindset, but they want to chase off and do things on their own. They want to start businesses. They want to go here and go there and make money. This is how harsh James goes against this type of rhetoric. We should say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. See, that actually makes a lot more sense when you come at it from James's perspective. He's like, no, 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 it's not me, I, my, it's Lord. I yield. What do you want? What should I do? So we must be careful with such language Instead, living and speaking as though we wholly belong to God. Very easy words to say, I belong to Jesus. I love Jesus. But have we really thought through the ramifications of how much Jesus wants? How much he's going to take? 
So you don't have to do anything for salvation. You merely need to yield. Give your life up to him. We were once a slave to sin. Now we are a slave to righteousness and to God. There was once a man, and he sailed across the, the oceans to the Americas, and he, he, did, um, he did quite well in, in gold panning and, and fossicking at the time. He made himself quite a fortune. And unfortunately, he got invited to the slave markets there in America when it was red hot, when it was all go. And he sees these men, women, and children standing up before him on a podium, and they were naked. They were being laughed at and ridiculed. These poor, poor people have been taken away from their homes. And these men are gruffly talking about what they're going to do to these slaves. And he's there, and he's realized that that moment, and I dare say you'd be the same, I don't want to be here. This isn't right. And there was a woman who was up there, a slave girl, and she was about to be purchased, and some of the language that was being thrown towards her, she'll she'll get a hefty price. But the language that was being hurled at her, this man couldn't take it anymore, and as the bid started rolling in, he started putting his hand up. And the price just went higher and higher and higher, and he still kept fighting, fighting, fighting. And it was a small fortune that he paid, and he won her. And what he did was this. They, they brought her to him, and he took her down to the slave office, and as he, as he turns to her, she's snarling at him, the broken English that she had. She's saying, I will hate you. I will hate you for what you have done. She's hurting. She's broken. And he turns away, does some business, turns back, and she spits at him and tries to scratch him. And as she, as he, she does that, he hands her these papers and some Soldiers come over, they unclip her chains, and he says, you're free, you're free, you can go. She spat again. She couldn't believe it. She thought this was just a ruse because other men have said that things were going to happen and that she'll get away and she'll, have, she'll be all right if she just this, that, and the other, but it was just a trick to just break her spirit. And so she couldn't believe it. But what the man does next is incredible. He begins to walk away. She's holding the papers. She realizes that he was actually telling the truth. She's a free woman. These are her papers. He bought her and he can choose what he wants to do with her and she's free. She runs up to him, turns him around and says, basically in in broken English, are you serious? Is this true? Is this true? Yes, you're free. Go. She falls down at his feet weeping and she says, you have freed me. And so now I will stay with you. And from that moment on, he brought her into his family and she lived as one of them. And that's a picture of the slavery that we're called into with Jesus. What do we do with our freedom? Like that woman, do we run away and make a mess? Or do we run to the feet of the Lord and throw ourselves at it and say, Lord, you have freed me. My life is yours. 
You're not going to find family running in the other direction. You're not going to find peace and joy that the Lord gives you in the other direction. And I want to be honest. Anyone who thinks that they can have Jesus and take hold of the world, will not Satan pick that sheep's bones clean? But instead for us, we are a free people. And so we use that freedom to give our life back to Jesus. Now, in James verse 1, he also goes on to talk about the scattered 12 tribes. And some people have thought, well, Dan, is this only a book for the, for the Israelite? What's he talking about? The scattered 12 tribes. Maybe this isn't for the Gentile. But we've got to understand this is rhetoric that's being used at the time. If we remember there in Revelation 7, we read a section out of it. He says that there's only 144,000. He heard 144,000 there in heaven. And then it labels off each tribe of Israel, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, which reaches 144. But what happens in Revelation 7 when John turns and has a look for himself? Not here, but turns and look. He sees people, an uncountable number from every tribe, tongue, and nation there in heaven worshiping God. What did Jesus call us to do? Did he say, all right, go out and go look after the Jew? Or did he say, go out and baptize and make disciples of all nations? But we understand from Revelation 7 and other passages that this is just a a rhetorical sentence being used, that for the Israelite, Jesus is the Messiah who came and brought them all back together. The true Israel, those who are circumcised of heart, they are brought in through Jesus, and that includes now, because of God's love, because of his big heart, all nations. That means you're included. You are included. Now, that's the teaching part of our book, Done. James is the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, proudly confessing Christ's ownership over his life. And this is a wisdom letter for the churches to be dispersed around about the Mediterranean. Now he goes on to the more, I guess, fundamental part of what we can take away today. Verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Oh, is there there a mistake there? Do, Do you normally consider it pure joy? Hang on, I'll just read it again, sorry. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. No, that's what it says. Who here sees their trials as God refining their faith? As pressure makes diamonds and heat forges steel, so God will use adversity and trial to increase and mature our faith. Incredibly, God knows what tomorrow holds. He knows what next year holds. And I guarantee you this, I absolutely guarantee you this. If God was to place you in next year's trials, you'd probably crumple and fall apart and be broken. And so you're not at next year's trials. He knows what's on the horizon. And so right now, the Lord is preparing you in this season for the next. You see, that's what a loving father does. 
You wouldn't throw your child in, in over their head to watch them drown. You teach them to swim over here in the, in the little section, and though that's hard, as they mature, as their bones and muscles become stronger, it's going to get deeper and deeper and deeper. I wish there was a point in Christianity on this side of heaven where I could say, ah, it just goes all easy, just take, put your feet up and relax. No, Christ didn't call us to relax. He didn't call us to a life to be lived like everybody else in the world. He called you out of the world to live in newness of life, to have the joy that he has And what's that joy and where does it come from? Love. And if you set yourself to the task of loving God and loving others, it is going to feel like a rod at times. And God is going to challenge you at times. And he doesn't do it because because he's harsh. He's doing it because he loves you and he needs you to be equipped and ready for the next season. James knows there's two ways to take trials and tribulation. You can take it with joy, understanding that there is purpose. For a Christian, when someone out there is struggling, when someone who doesn't know Christ is struggling, it is really for no reason. It has no rhyme. Or You you ask them, you say, what is the purpose of life? And 99% of the time they scratch their head and they say, there is none, or I don't know. That's not the same for the Christian. The Christian knows that when a trial is before us, it is for the sake of God that I'm going to press through. Not only that, he's going to be the one beside me to help me get through. We have purpose, immense purpose. And so you can take it with joy, knowing that alone. But what's the other way we can take a trial? You know, when someone's giving you a hard time, you just want to lash out at them or you're just feeling a bit down and it's now you time and you're going to let them know about it. Oh, we can, we can grumble. We can kick and scream. Has anybody seen one of those children at the shopping center? Has anyone had one of those children at the shopping center? Uh, they fall on the ground. They kick and scream. They're crying. And it's like, this is over you not getting a tic-tac. Like, you know what I mean? And that's sometimes where it can be really tough for us because that's how we can act. We can take trials one of one or two ways. And so we're seeing here that James is inserting or impressing the fact that it is God who is going to set you upon that trial. Now, James will go on, and I have to, I have to take, take this here because this came up this week. There is a huge difference. Please hear me. There is a huge difference between God putting adversity and trial before you to challenge you, and he will discipline you as well because he loves you. Hebrews says it's because he loves you that he disciplines you. That is very, very different to being tempted When you are tempted, that is because of your own flesh, your own passions and desires. And James is going to say that later on, and we're going to teach that. But until we get there, I just want to remind you of that because I don't want you to sit there and feel like you're about to sin or there's some trial going on and you're about to jump off the deep end and then you're like, oh, this is just a trial from God. No, that's you. That is you. Satan Satan can make sin feel more appealing. But at the end of the day, you can't stand there and point the finger at Satan and say, he made me do it. Like, you didn't lash out at that person because of Satan. 
He may have said, if you do that, it'll make you feel better. He may have made it more enticing, but it was you who ultimately at the end of the day sinned. And we see that in the garden. Adam tried to blame Eve. Eve tried to blame the snake. Everybody's blaming everybody, but everybody received a just penalty for what they've done. So we want to let perseverance finish its work. Don't attempt to shake it off. Don't attempt to shake the trial off. What do I mean? You can, to try and get yourself out of trial, begin sinning. That's the point here. When when your flesh is reeling, when you're feeling uncomfortable, when you don't want to be in this position anymore, you can lash out and turn that into sin. Now, this is not saying... You can't go to a doctor. You can't ask for wise counsel. You can't get all the help you need in the world and call all your brothers and sisters in to pray for you, to to get beside you. You can do that. But that does not mean that when you're going through a trial or adversity that God's put in your way, that you can then go, well, I'm going to find the, uh, what is it, the shortcut. I'm going to try and get myself out of this because my flesh doesn't like what's going on and so I'm going to cheat. No, realize it for what it is and persevere and punch through that season. And we're not going to get there this week, but James is going to say prayer. He's going to say, if you lack wisdom, pray. He's going to couple that in with with these trials and these tribulations. I tried to remember um, Job's wife. What did she say? This is an example of cheating or cutting the corner. Job is just a mess. He's had everything stolen from him. He's, he's, his health is ruined. And what does his wife say? She's the most comforting woman on earth. Just curse God and die. Just curse God and let him kill you. It's like, no. Like the last thing you need to hear at that moment is that advice. Now, he could have cut corners. He could have done that. And the trial would have ended with his life. But what did he do? He endured the trial, and God blessed him. And so we don't cut corners. We see as well Ananias, who's scared of Saul, who became Paul. Saul was running around trying to trying to round up Christians and send them to jail. Ananias, oh, God says to Ananias, I love, I love it when people talk back to angels and God. It just flip, like freaks me out. <laughs> but he goes, he goes, like the Lord says, go and go and get this man and pray for him. Oh Lord, no, you Lord, you don't understand. He's a bad man. He'll probably arrest me. Oh, okay, you know, okay. I, my advice is don't do that. Don't do that. And then what does the Lord say? In Acts 9, verse 16, he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Think about that. That was Paul's existence a mark of him being an apostle to the Gentile and also preach to the Jew is that his ministry would be marked by suffering so that Paul could say these words in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. How on earth did he get there? How on earth could you say those words? You know, I I can say that when I'm on top of a mountain and my belly's full and I'm feeling great. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. (laughs) What about when you're in the valley? What teaches you to say that and believe it when you're in the valley? Oh, it's going through other valleys. 
It's realizing that the Lord is trustworthy, that the Lord will pull me through, that even at the point of where I think I'm going to die and I've lost all hope of life itself, the Lord still came through for me. And so when I look at these people in the eye, I can say to them, indeed, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Lord is steadfast. The Lord will not let his chosen down. No matter the trial, no matter the tribulation, he is faithful and mighty to save. You yourself will descend into valleys much like the ones that Paul had to go through. And there's actually a few ways you can deal with that valley. Imagine a valley, but there's a, there's a very narrow little door that you have to go through to get into the darkness, to get into that hard season of life. God's going to wade you through it. And I want to be honest, there's some who get to that point. They look down into that darkness. They look at the narrowness of the rock in which they have to squeeze through to even get into that darkness. They say, I'm turning back. I'm not following the Lord Jesus into there. That's too hard. Because what's going to have to come off as they're sliding through that narrow rock entrance? Their sin, their hang-ups, their hold-ups, the things that they're holding on to and not giving over to the Lord because every valley God's taking you through, maybe not consecutively, they can, they can be different at times, but he's going to peel something away from you like an onion every time. He's going to peel away layer after layer because what does God want from you? He wants you to be more like Jesus and you can't do that when you're hanging on to a lot of baggage and so he's going to peel that away as you go through, even before you've come into the problem, into the trial, into the difficult period and it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. And so some are just going to throw their hands up and say, I'm done. I'm not going any further with this Jesus, a very pliable type person. Others of us are going to sit there and they're going to weep. They're going to cry. Because you know what? It's not fun when you're going through or about to go through a valley and you're not going to really want to let go of the thing that you've got, but you also love Jesus. And we've all been at this point where you're weeping or you're just struggling or you're depressed over what needs to be given over to the Lord for you to enter into this next season. But for those who wrestle with the Lord, they will find themselves victorious because God will get them through it. They don't, they don't run off. They don't, they don't just leave, but they bemoan the loss of it. And that's okay. We, we're human. We struggle in this. But James has in mind an excitement at the challenge. A similar heart to the one we see in Philippians 3.8. This is, this is Paul again. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. You imagine a man like that going into a valley. Oh, Lord, you, you want me to let go of this money that I've come into because I can't get through there holding on to it and move on with you? He lets it go because it's loss. It's nothing to him. He has considered it all dung compared to knowing Jesus and he will do whatever it takes to know him more and share 
in his sufferings. Now, it's funny, I'm going to give you the secret to having joy in the midst of trial and suffering. And it's actually the first words that James has already said. I, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've got nothing to lose, if you are sold out in love with Jesus, these things become joy. This is my father who's giving me a season of testing. Praise God, get me through. I'm a slave. My wealth, my family, my life, it all belongs to you, Lord. Take it. Take it all. For I will rise to the occasion. Or you'll take my life and I'll rise with you, Jesus. And so I just want to end with this today. The secret of joy is to surrender yourself to Jesus. Yield your life to him. Don't give in to the world that says that you can have him and something else, but just give yourself over. It's not a taking on of something. It's a letting go of. Again, we don't work to get to heaven. We just receive Jesus and become more and more and more like him. And the quicker that we come to this realization and give it all over to him, the more joy we have in the trial. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have blessed us with this day. Lord, I pray that you will, by your spirit, allow us to rise to the occasion to meet those valleys, Lord, with joy, knowing that there is true purpose and true gain, Lord, as you refine our faith, as you set us up and prepare us for the next season and make us more like your son, Jesus. I thank you for this church. I pray you continue to bless us. Bless us as we go about this week. Allow us to meditate day and night on your word. In Jesus' name, amen.